It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you today. By the way, um, you can get us over the Internet. You can live stream us, LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com. And during the week, you can get us on Fox Business Network, FBN, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. The name of the show is Kudlow. And if you can't make it at uh, 4, you can just text your favorite 9-year-old, and she'll teach you how to DVR the show. And again, uh, here, you can get us across the Internet, live stream us throughout the country and around the world and the solar system and the Milky Way. You won't miss a single thing. We're going to talk about some war coverage today, the Israeli war for its existence. We will have General Jack Keene on at the half hour. Uh, at the next hour, we will have former National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien Plenty of war news. Israel expanding its ground operations. The airstrikes are intensifying. They were still going on Saturday morning in Israel. And then I want to talk about for a moment some remarkable, remarkably bad things. I mean, I've tried to give President Biden credit for supporting Israel. But his behavior or his attitude towards Iran undermines whatever support he's giving to Israel. I mean, I just do not understand some of these things. So let's go back to yesterday. John Kirby, who's the president's uh, mouthpiece, goes on this TV program, The View. You know, The View, it's a a harebrained, far-left show uh, that plays on another network. And he says to these crazy panelists, they're talking about Iran, of course, says, don't seek a conflict with Iran. Not looking to escalate into some sort of period of hostilities here with Iran. He just comes out and says that. And I don't know what he's talking about. This whole story is about Iran. And it's the Biden's appeasement of Iran. It's the Biden's failure to enforce the economic and energy and ballistic missile sanctions against Iran that has allowed Iran to reaccumulate bundles and boodles of cash. They were bankrupt three or four years ago. That's what Donald Trump left them bankrupt because of the Trump sanctions. No energy sales, no sales of any kind, no shipping, no foreign reserve. Now they're producing almost 4 million barrels of oil a day, up from about 400,000. Their foreign exchange reserves have gone to about 80 billion, up from about 3 or 4 billion. Their oil sales have produced, I don't know, at least 60 or 70 billion up from near zero because the Bidens are trying to make some sort of crazy nuclear peace deal, a very bad hangover from the Obama days. 
Iran has the money to finance Hamas and Hezbollah and the other terrorist groups around the Middle East. And I might add selling Russia drones. And the oil sales, by the way, going to our enemy in China. So here's this guy Kirby sucking up to these left-wing crazies on The View and saying, we don't seek conflict with Iran. We're not looking to escalate into some sort of period of hostilities with Iran. I have breaking news for Mr. Kirby and his boss, Joe Biden. Iran is at war with America as well as Israel. And that has been the case for a long time. Iran financed and planned the barbaric Hamas invasion of Israel. Iran is the largest state sponsor of terrorism in the Mideast and probably the rest of the world. I don't know if Team Biden, including Mr. Kirby, understand this. And why are Biden officials, including the president himself, always worrying out loud that Iran might escalate the hostilities? We don't want them to escalate. We don't want them to escalate. What I want to know is, why doesn't Iran fear that the United States will escalate the hostilities against Iran? Why doesn't Iran worry about us or our next move? I mean, this constant hand-wringing by American officials over Iran. Why don't we do something about Iran? Why don't we respond to Iran's aggression? Because they are the ones. There would be no Hamas war against Israel. There would be no Hamas barbarian cutting off babies' heads and grannies out of bed and all the awful horror stories that we've heard. If it weren't for Iran and if it weren't for the fact that Team Biden desperately trying to make a misbegotten peace deal with Iran, that Team Biden has allowed Iran's financial comeback, which has translated into this dreadful war. Draw a line from Iran's financial comeback to Hamas, to the barbaric war of that began on October 7th. Just draw that line. Where's the American response to these crazy Iranian mullahs? I mean, what Kirby said, we don't want a conflict with Iran. Why is the United States government, the Biden administration, afraid of Iran? Let's go back a little bit, okay? A little history here. It was Trump who killed... Iran's top terrorist, Soleimani. Soleimani. What did Iran do? Well, they threatened this and threatened that, but at the end of the day, they did nothing. I mean, as the story goes, Trump talked to the mullahs and said, you know, we've got your phone numbers. We have your addresses if you try and pull something. They were afraid of Trump. They're not afraid of Biden. 
That there is a huge problem. Russia was afraid of Trump. Russia's not afraid of Biden. Afghanistan was afraid of Trump. Afghanistan's not afraid of Biden. China was afraid of Trump. They're not afraid of Biden. Remember the story? She, President Xi, has uh, dinner with Trump in Mar-a-Lago in late 2017, and they're having Trump's favorite dessert, chocolate cake. Whereupon, in the middle of dessert, Trump informs Xi that he just bombed, he, Trump, just bombed Syria heavily. And in fact, it was Trump who took out the Al-Qaeda and ISIS in Syria, killed al-Baghdadi, ended ended the terrorists in Syria, at least the ISIS version of the terrorists in Syria. It is always better to be feared than loved. That is true in politics. It's true in international affairs. I will say this from day one of the Biden administration, right up through Mr. Kirby's appearance on that left-wing TV show. The Biden Middle East policy has been one of Iranian appeasement. Appeasement, not deterrence, but appeasement. And the appeasement has failed. And in fact, the entire Biden policy towards Iran has collapsed in failure. That's what's going on here. But the consequences have been enormous. The consequences are this big war. And of course, the Israelis, the IDF, will take this war to Hamas and Hezbollah need be. And frankly, I'm hoping it will take it to Iran at some point. Now, let me talk about this. Uh, you know, Iran, Iran and their terrorist proxies are attacking U.S. military assets throughout the Middle East. This is a very important sub-story of this Israel war. They're attacking our naval ships. They're attacking our embassies. And we've fought back. We've had to use cruise missiles and drones. We've had uh, some 20-odd attacks. No one's been killed so far. Casualties, though, 20 or so have been injured. I guess one soldier did die of a heart attack in the middle of one of the uh, attacks by the terrorists. So what does Biden do? What does Biden do? He lobs a couple of bombs at some munitions depots in Syria, which were unmanned. That's all they did. Lob bonds, it's an unmanned Syrian ammo depots. Utterly ineffectual. Utterly ineffectual. Senator Tom Cotton yesterday called it unserious. And Cotton said this, quote, They are laughing at us in Tehran. Iran will continue to target Americans until President Biden gets serious about imposing severe costs on Iran. End quote from Senator Tom Cotton. So I'm going to say what I always say. I've been saying this now for three weeks on the TV and here on the radio. Biden must end his appeasement policy. You cannot appease Iran. They hate us. 
They hate Israel. They hate Western values. They hate Western democracies. Forget appeasement. Start deterrence. Start deterrence. And the best way to do that, I think, at least one of the early ways to do that, is to restore the tough economic and energy sanctions. Bankrupt Iran. Interdict and impound Iranian supplies on the high seas. Stop a ship, I call it. Stop an Iranian ship. Whether it's an oil tanker or whatever, cut off their banks, cut off their business relations with other countries. Restore the sanctions. Bankrupt Iran. Stop a ship. And that would send a message to Iran. You know, God bless the Israeli Defense Forces. God speed for the Israeli Defense Forces. I hope they annihilate Hamas. But we have to learn some lessons that the real culprit behind this dreadful war against Israel and against the United States, and for that matter, against civilized humanity. The real culprit is Iran. And we should do something about Iran. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. You know, just a couple more things on this weak, ineffectual response uh, to Iran and their terrorist proxies from attacking U.S. ships and attacking U.S. military assets. I mean, of course, Iran is at war with the United States. This whole idea, this incredible idea, I mean, uh, that somehow this is separate from the conflict of uh, between Israel and Hamas and Hezbollah. This whole idea, we don't seek a conflict with Iran. We're not looking to escalate into some sort of period of hostilities. Well, they are. Secretary of Defense Austin commenting on this ineffectual, almost laughingstock response to 20 attacks on U.S. military assets by sending, lobbing a couple of missiles into some uh, unmanned ammo warehouses in Syria. It's the lowest possible, the lowest possible response. So Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who is a former four-star general, he says, quote, the U.S. response was separate and distinct from the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas, end quote. But that is simply not true. And why create that fiction? The militias from Yemen and Iraq and Syria are equipped, trained, and financed by Iran. They do not act without Iran's assent. That comes from today's, this morning's Wall Street Journal editorial. And telling Americans that the strikes have nothing to do with Hamas disguises the nature of the Middle East challenge and the source of the problem. The Biden administration does deserve credit for equating Hamas with Islamic states. But without changing American policy towards Iran, the threat will persist. I mean, my point here, 
It's a simple point. Walter Russell Mead, who was on this radio show a week ago, and has written brilliantly about this, probably the most brilliant, on the pages of the Wall Street Journal. Walter from Bard College, he's a historian, political scientist, Hudson Institute, common sense conservative strategist. You know, he makes the point over and over and over again. The Bidens have appeased Iran. And that is the single biggest mistake. And that mistake and that policy, which has fallen apart now, completely fallen apart, that policy is responsible, directly responsible for the Hamas invasion of Israel and the bloody war that we are watching as Israel fights for its existence. And that war is also a war against the United States. Make no mistake about that. Iran hates the United States. Hamas hates the United States. Hezbollah hates the United States, etc., etc. So it's a complete fiction that any U.S. response is separate and distinct from the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. Basically, they still, this is so crazy, the Bidens are still trying to salvage the appeasement of Iran. They're trying to salvage that failed policy. And it has led to a catastrophe. At some point, we're going to have to hit Iran. But maybe before we do that, we could go back to the economic and energy sanctions. Because if you bankrupt Iran, you're going to bankrupt Hamas and the other terrorist groups. But at some point, we're going to have to have pinprick precision bombs to nail Iran's command and control centers or to nail... Iran's oil fields, because that's the only product they have. That's the only export they have, oil. I know they're making some drones, too, that they sell to uh, to Russia and elsewhere, probably North Korea. But the axis of evil, Iran, Russia, China, North Korea, the axis of evil right now, the center of that axis is Iran. It is they who fostered this horrible war and Israel will fight to the death and the Biden people are misleading Americans on a daily basis by somehow saying this is not a conflict with Iran of course it is let's call a spade a spade for heaven's sakes I'm Kudlow General Jack Keane up next after this brief word With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. It was with great pleasure we bring in my good friend, General Jack Keane, 
retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, a Fox News senior strategic presidential medal of freedom recipient. I was in the Oval Office when he got that wonderful award. General Keene, thank you, sir. We appreciate it. Delighted to be here, Larry, with you and your audience. Yes, thanks again. Um, sir, I want to, I'll start off uh, with the expansion. Israel is expanding its ground operations. The airstrikes are intensifying. Just want to get your thoughts and your assessment of this particular stage of the war. Let's begin there, sir. Yeah, well, certainly I, I think it's, uh, much of what has taken place now is really a major shaping operation for the the subsequent invasion. And, and I think paying close attention to what what they're targeting, they're, they, they're trying to take down as much of the 300 miles of tunnel complex that exists in Gaza, which is certainly formidable and, and, and quite unusual uh, in urban warfare to have anything that, that, that is that expensive. Um, so, you know, they have obviously... Uh, you know, penetration bombs that can reach there, assuming they have good intelligence. So a lot of a lot of that deals with that. They've conducted a number of raids and a more expanded operation uh, last night, and, and those are really focused on uh, what we refer to as actionable intelligence. In other words, they have a target to go to that they know exists, and they want to take that down now as part of the preparation uh, for the invasion itself. And then destroy that target and leave. And so we'll see um, the ground invasion coming, and and it's going to take time because they've assigned themselves a very challenging objective, something they've never given themselves before, Larry, and that is to dismantle Hamas as a military terrorist organization, which means kill or capture most all of them and certainly its leaders for sure, and then eliminated as a political entity uh, governing Hamas itself and replace it uh, with, with something else, which implies some occupation of Gaza for at least some period of time, something certainly uh, the government and the idea, IDF has not wanted to do, uh, but they don't really have much of a, a choice in it now. Hmm. And the full ground invasion may be a ways off? Yeah, I don't know when that is. I mean, this is a time clock the Israelis are on. Uh, I think uh, they're trying to facilitate the humanitarian aid as much as possible and and get many of the citizens away from the main battle area. Uh, those are factors in it. And also, I think there's another factor that you know they really don't talk about too much for obvious reasons, is how much do they really know about the hostages, what has taken place in terms of negotiations, and also what has taken place in terms of a detailed plan to attempt the rescue. So those those are complicated factors which have slowed down the timing of the invasion. General Keene, I want to switch gears slightly um this uh, this uh, U.S. attack on some unmanned ammo or whatever they are, munitions depots, uh, 
is Iran and its proxies have been firing on American military assets. Um, I guess they've, they've killed one contractor, but they've injured <clears throat> a bunch of people, a couple of dozen people. Um, and the both the Secretary of Defense, Austin, and also an Obama spokesman, uh, John Kirby, have this argument that um, we don't seek a conflict with Iran. We, we don't want any hostilities with Iran. And uh, General Austin said the same thing. And I just thought that this is an incredibly weak response by the United States. I mean, Iran and its terror uh, people are at war with the U.S., and they will continue to keep firing at U.S. military assets. I mean, what is your thought about this? Why are we so well, reluctant? Why are we so worried about their escalating? Why aren't they worried that we will escalate the conflict and take it right to Iran, which is the center of this awful war? No, Larry, I totally agree with you. I mean, you put your finger right on the problem. You know, so our audience understands the United States still has a very modest presence in Iraq and Syria. In Iraq, is about 2,500 soldiers not involved in direct combat, but in assisting the Iraqi security forces, the purpose of which is to make certain that ISIS does not rise again. And also 900 soldiers in Syria doing the same work in, in eastern Syria. So very modest force. ISIS has aspirations, as we all know, to attack America and its interests. So we've maintained very modest forces around the world to stamp down only those radical Islamist movements that have had aspirations to hurt us. Multiple presidents have made the same decision, and I agree with it. We have a force less than a 1,000 in East Africa for the same reason. We have special ops guys very close to Yemen to go after the al-Qaeda in Yemen for the same reason. So what has taken place here, Larry? Iran strategic objective is to dominate and control the Middle East and also control the flow of oil out of the Persian Gulf. And since 1980s, when they took power, they have said that to achieve those strategic ends, there are two objectives that we must accomplish. One is to drive U.S. forces out of the region. And they have been at that since the early bombings in in Beirut at the Marine Barracks, 241 killed, our embassies blown up in in Lebanon and Kuwait, Kobar Towers in the mid-90s at Air Force uh, Barracks, 19 killed, 500 wounded. They have been at that all these years, and they have never stopped from that objective. So they are focusing on those modest forces in Iraq and Syria. Their second objective is to destroy the state of Israel. The administration, when they came into power, took a diplomatic effort and reversed Trump's policy. When you think of the fact that Qasem Soleimani had just been killed and Iran was back on its heels in a way never seen in, since 1980 because the sanctions were taking a huge impact on them and the psychological and emotional impact on the country, on its leadership, on its military as a result of the iconic figure, Soleimani, being killed was staggering to that country. The Biden administration came in and, without telling anybody, not telling the Congress, stopped enforcing the Trump sanctions to send a signal to the Iranian leadership that they were willing to make concessions 
to go back into the nuclear deal. And then it, with the details of the deal themselves, which they went back into negotiations on, they made many concessions. Iran kept stiffening them. Meanwhile, from that time frame all the way up to October the 7th, when the horrific attack uh, was made from Hamas against the Israelis, the, the IRGC, the Iranian proxies, had attacked the United States 83 times since the Biden administration came in, and only a handful of times have we ever responded. Then October the 7th came, and they've attacked, as you indicated, they've accelerated their attacks 20 times. Our policy, diplomatic policy, of appeasing Iranians has been dead wrong from the beginning. We have been unwilling to confront them, and they know that, and they've taken advantage of it. This attack by Hamas against Israel, their objective to help destroy the state of Israel and continuous attack on America, they're all related. The administration takes pains to separate the two and say they're not related. They are related because of the objectives I just stated and what Iran is trying to achieve. Our response was a very weak response, and they see it as that. It will not deter the proxies from continued attack. As a matter of fact, the very next day, they attacked our air base in, uh, in Iraq with a drone. They will continue to attack us. What we should have done, Larry, is phase one, put together a comprehensive multiple target plan to take down the proxy leadership that is in charge of attacking the American forces in Iraq and Syria Kill as many of those leaders as possible, take down their command and control, destroy the rockets, missiles, and drones that they're using as offensive weapons, and destroy the logistical infrastructure. That will take multiple targets to do it, would not take a lot of time. It would send a very loud message to them. And then I would tell them, uh, if you continue, phase two would mean an attack against the IRGC training camp in in Iran, that trains Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis. In fact, Hamas was just there in September, 500 of them receiving training. And I believe me, the, the way Hamas has conducted this attack has the running fingerprints all over it. One, hostages, which has always been a big thing for the IRGC, never for Hamas on any scale before. The imagination of using motorcycles, never before used by Hamas all the time used by other proxies working for the Iranians, uh, using uh, hang, motorized hang gliders to overcome the technology of the wall, etc. All fingerprints with Hamas. Take down that training camp, I would tell them, if you don't stop. And also I would put the IRGC headquarters in Iran at risk as well. I wouldn't take it down now, but I would let them know on the no uncertain terms that these are future targets if you don't stop it. So, General Keen, let me take a quick break here. I want to pursue this. This is so important. Um, and by the way, you have taught me well because I've been talking exactly about this uh, on the TV show and on the radio. Um, folks, we're talking to General Jack Keene, Chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, Fox News Senior Strategic Analyst, retired four-star general, Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient, uh, General Keene, we'll be right back after a quick message. I want to explore much more about this, the IRGC. Folks, I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Please stick around. <laughs> 
Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman, Institute for the Study of War, Fox News senior strategic analyst, and Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. General Keene, just let's uh, backtrack. Uh, we should take out the command and control of the IRGC. Is that what you're advocating? No. Well, first of all, I, we should take out the command and control of the proxies that are actually initiating the attacks against us. They're in Iraq and Syria, plus all their weapons, plus their infrastructure. Then, uh, after we do that, uh, I think that would likely deter the Iranians, but maybe not. And then I would have a phase two, which I would tell them about. Mm. And, and that would be, uh, next on the target list would be their training center where they trained Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis in Iran. And I would also tell them that the IRGC headquarters uh, in Iran, if they continue to attack Americans, would be at risk. Mm. Uh, and, and I think you have to really understand what's happening here in terms of the strategy. And the Biden administration really needs to take a hard look. That the, the diplomatic appeasement strategy of Iran just flat has failed. Mm. And the evidence that you're documenting of this, these continuous attacks are, are certainly testimony to that. It, it's just not working. The, their unwillingness to confront them and take them on and remove the sanctions. I mean, our audience should know, I mean, and you probably have educated them on this, by not enforcing the Trump sanctions, they have gone from about 200,000 barrels of oil a day, now north of 3.5 million barrels of oil a yep. day. Yep. And they're flush with money. Yep. So these yep. proxies have the cash, the weapons, the missiles, the rockets, the drones. They're, they're full up with equipment. You can see Hamas, after three weeks, is still firing rockets at Israel. Mm. Thousands and thousands of rockets have been fired because they, their arsenals are full, and the Hezbollah is sitting up there in Lebanon with 130,000-plus rockets and missiles, all considerably better than Hamas in terms of range, precision, and lethality. So this, Iran is flush, and they become more aggressive under this administration. And there is... What's taking place in the world, Larry, with the, with Russians' aggressiveness, Iran pushing hard for their domination of the Middle East, President Xi threatening war, these are related mm. because they see the United States in what they believe is a weakened position, and they're trying to take advantage. Why don't we restore the sanctions? Why don't we interdict or impound ships carrying oil to China, for example? A shot across the bow. Send Iran a message. Absolutely. Absolutely is what those two things would be major factors. If China broke out war with the United States, I would hope that one of the biggest things that we would do, and and I, I would make certain that they know this would happen. In fact, I'd be practicing it so they could see it. And that is shut down the oil flow out of the Persian Gulf mm. to China, which is 50%. That's why China wants to have more bases, you know, in the Middle East. They have one in Djibouti, but they want more uh, for that reason. 
they know full well that the United States has this capability to do so. And could we do it now, given what is happening? A- absolutely. It, or it, hit an oil field. Hit an oil field. Hit, if they keep firing on American ships, which they will, hit an oil field. Honestly, General Keene. No, I, 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 I agree with that. And uh, Lindsey Graham has mentioned uh, yes. that you know, I think they have four oil refineries. Uh, the, the, the Iranians are dead serious about this. They have moved off their strategic objectives to dominate and control the Middle East and to drive the United States out of the region. Hmm. And, and that, that's why they're doing it. And to, to think that somehow diplomacy is going to work it, after three years of this, and now they're accelerating it, that policy has failed. Now, listen, I do give the administration credit for encouraging Saudis and Israel to normalize relations with each other. That is a very good thing. But still, when you're dealing with Iran, their relationship, their strategic relationship with Iran is just wrong. Mm. And appeasing them diplomatically just has not worked. Their unwillingness to seriously confront them is the is the problem? You read any of this guy, Russell uh, uh, Walter Reed, Walter Russell Mead in the Wall Street Journal, writing constantly about the failure of appeasement and the need for deterrence. I mean, he's really first rate. I know the guy pretty well. He teaches school at Bard College. Um, he's made the same point over and over again. And the the Bidens keep junking. The Bidens keep trying to separate Iran from uh, the war in Israel. You can't do that. You just can't do that. They're one and the same. If, if Iran didn't have $80 billion flush with money of foreign exchange reserves and all that oil money coming in, you think this would have happened, honestly? No, absolutely not. Uh, like I said, at the end of the Trump administration, these guys were back on their heels in a way they hadn't been. Yeah. You know, since the regime got started and what we should have done, this administration should have come in and said, OK, we don't agree with everything the Trump administration did. We don't agree with the fact that they got out of the nuclear deal. But it, the fact is what they're out of it. And the fact is that the Iranians are back on their heels. They probably wouldn't have pulled the trigger on Qasem Soleimani, but it has happened. And it was advantageous to us. The, the regime was rocked by it. Mm-hmm. As opposed to seeing those things as strengths and not through the prism of anti-Trump, what they should have done is strengthen their hand, immediately gone to the Arabs with the Abraham Accords right away, not mm-hmm. stiff the Arabs, which mm-hmm. they did. And then they, when Netanyahu came back into power because they don't like him, they stiffed him as well. Mm-hmm. So the Iranians see all of that. What do they look at that? They say, my God, that's a major change in strategy from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. This kind of confirms our view that this is more like Obama administration. Many of the same people that work for Obama are working for Biden, and they saw that as huge opportunity for themselves to take advantage of the United States. Mm. And they have been doing that now for three years. China sees it too, sir. China sees the same evolution of events and diplomacy and players they see the same thing no i totally agree and 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 as much as you're indicating the attack on israel and the attack on the u.s presence in the region are all related driven by the iranians they're calling the shots 
Thank what you. is happening in Ukraine, in the Middle East, Gotta go. and in the Pacific is related as well. General Jack Keane, the best of the best. Thank you, sir. We really appreciate it. Thank you ever so much. Folks, we'll take a break. On the other side of the break, former National Security Trump advisor Robert O'Brien. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We bring in my great friend, Ambassador Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor in the Trump administration, now Chairman of American Global Strategies. Uh, Robert, thank you. Welcome to the show. Um, you know, I was on the phone first half hour with General Keene, who says uh, basically the Israelis are doing the right thing. They're shaping the big operation. They're taking down as uh, many hostages as they can. They're getting at uh, Hamas's leadership. They're trying to figure out a way to deal with the tunnels. I wanted to just ask you about the hostage side of this story. Um, you're a former hostage negotiator, and I'm not sure people are clear. I mean, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to rescue all the hostages, whether they're American hostages or whether they're Israeli hostages. Can you just give us some assessments, some advice on how you think the Israelis should proceed here, how this hostage story is going to play out? Sure, Larry, and it's great to be with you. And, and General Keene, it's always tough to follow him. He knows military affairs like nobody's business. So hmm. let me try and weigh in on the hostage side. First of all, Larry, I think we have to look. There are three groups of hostages. There are the hostages that were taken after the brutal attack on southern Israel, many of them wounded, many of them women and young, very young children, elderly Holocaust survivors. And those are the Israeli hostages and, and some of the dual citizens, including U.S. dual citizens, are in the tunnels and the cages being held by Hamas as leverage to try and stop the invasion or to try and re- obtain the release of Palestinian prisoners in Israel. The second group of hostages now are the American citizens or dual citizens or primarily Palestinians who are in Gaza and should be free to leave. Uh, they, 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 Hamas has no truck with them. They're, they're not kidnapped. But they're now being refused permission to leave Gaza, so they become human shields. And so, the, so Hamas is not just using Israelis, but they're using their own people as human shields. And the number three, the, the bigger group of hostages, are the innocent Palestinian women and children who are being denied the ability to leave to go to the south. And so it's a very tricky, complicated situation for the Israelis and for the Americans when it comes to hostages. I think the, the best way to get them out and you're probably right. We're probably not going to get them all out, but the best way is to keep military pressure on the mosque. That's the only thing they understand. At the same time, have parallel diplomatic negotiations going on with countries like Qatar and perhaps Turkey that can talk to Hamas and, and explain to them that this is if, if they don't give these hostages back, we could have a Munich situation where every one of them is tracked down over the next 10 or 20 years and, mm. and eliminated and brought to justice for killing American and Israeli hostages. Um. Qatar is an important uh, channel or way station for this. I'm not sure people understand that. Well, Qatar is a major non-NATO ally. We have a very large air base there to defend Qatar and, and our, our interest in the Middle East against Iran. Uh, Qatar has been very hospitable to Americans or an ally. Uh, but they've also kept a channel of communications open with Hamas and, uh, and some of the Muslim Brotherhood actors in the Middle East. And, and because they... They know a guy who knows a guy, so to speak. Uh, they've been very effective for us in hostage negotiations. So I think the four hostages have been released. 
involved. The, the credit has gone so far, at least publicly, to Cutter. When I was the hostage envoy, Cutter was very useful to us in, in tracking down and updating information about hostages or helping them re- to release American hostages. So they play an important role. I know people are upset that uh, Hamas leadership is in, located in Qatar, but that, that's what allows them to do these negotiations. Now, my guess is, and this is pure speculation, is that once Hamas is destroyed on the ground in Israel, there'll be no reason for Hamas leaders to remain in Qatar, and my guess is they'll go to Tehran. Hmm. Go right to Iran. I mean, the issue down through the years has been U.S. does not negotiate with terrorists and the U.S. doesn't pay ransom for hostages. Now, does that, do those red lines figure into this? Or, I mean, you and I have talked about this. Qatar and others are third-party negotiators. Uh, how far is the U.S. taking this? I mean, is it, do they actually want Israelis to slow down the invasion because of the hostages, or what? Well, they probably want the Israelis to slow down the invasion for a number of reasons. And, and again, that, that shows a little bit of weakness on the American side. And it's like there's these pinprick attacks on a base formerly occupied by the IRGC in response to traumatic brain injuries suffered by 20 to 30 American servicemen. Mm-hmm. We, look, we look very, our actions and our words in the, in the Middle East, and it was an area that respects strength and despises weakness. We look incredibly weak and our actions are weak. Mm-hmm. And, and trying to slow down the Israelis looks weak as well. When it comes to paying ransom for hostages, that, that's always been American's policy. Unfortunately, under both the, Biden, the Obama administration and the Biden administration, they paid massive multi-billion-dollar ransoms to Iran for hostages. And when they when they paid those ransoms, and they can dress it up and say it's sanctions, waivers, and that sort of thing, but we, everyone knows, including the Iranians, know that it's ransom. The American people knows it's ransom. Know, know it's ransom. Once they start paying ransom, that creates a market for taking American hostages. But the other thing it does, which is very dangerous, Larry, is when you pay those ransoms, what, what happens to the money? Mm. Some of it's skimmed off by the corrupt officials, but a lot of it goes to terrorist operations and attacks. And so when we recently paid the $6 billion to Iran and ransom for five American detainees, almost immediately thereafter, we had the attacks on southern Israel. Mm. So we had more hostages taken and more terrorism as a result of, partial result, of us paying ransom. That's why it's so pernicious to do it. As far as negotiations go, look, we, we, we need to do everything we can to get these hostages out. And if we've, if we've got a line through Qatar or Turkey or in Egypt, um, and we can get some Americans out and save them the, from, from death or injury, then we should be taking, you know, using all necessary tools to, to do so. But, but they're, they're parallel tracks. Mm. You know, General Keene talked about that this operation lobbying a couple missiles uh at unmanned munition centers um, in Syria, I guess. So that's such a weak response, Robert O'Brien. And one of the things that... It's it's, it's weaker weaker than Clinton cruise missiles at the Astro factories in Sudan years ago. I mean, this this is embarrassing. Yes. So General Keene said, I mean, it's an interesting point. Uh, The IRGC has command and control centers, for example, in Iraq. And General Keene says we should have bombed them. We should have bombed them and killed the people manning these command and control centers. Not in Iran just yet, but in the ones that are outside Iran, which Iran basically controls. I mean, here, let me rephrase. Why is it that you see this uh, from John Kirby, the administration spokesman on this stuff, 
Uh, you see it from the Secretary of Defense. They're, they're trying to say that, that anything to do with Iran is completely separate from the Israeli-Hamas war and that we don't want to escalate conflict with Iran. I mean, I've never seen anything so nauseatingly stupid and fictitious. No, the problem they've got is they've spent eight years of the Obama administration, the first three years of the Biden administration, appeasing Iran and mm. rank appeasement. When when we left office, Larry, and this was in large part to your efforts, uh, Iran had $4 billion in foreign currency reserves. Mm. They could barely operate their economy. Today, they're a rich country. They have $70 billion in foreign currency reserves, and that doesn't include the $6 billion sweetener that they got for the hostages. So so we made Iran rich, and the, the idea of the Obama administration and the Biden administration, that's all the same personnel there, is that we can buy Iran's friendship. And the, the problem is Iran just isn't that into us. They don't want to be friends with us. <laughs> yes. They're the great Satan. They want to kill us. And, and so it's very hard now for the, the – well, once this Gaza thing has just totally ripped the, the, the mask off Iran, uh, it's very difficult for the administration to pivot and say, you know what, we were wrong. Iran's our enemy, and we've got to take strong action against them. They're still hoping against hope that somehow they can go back to the JCPOA, they can go back to appeasing Iran and, 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 be in, and, and trying to be friends with Iran, and, and they just they just can't move off that. And so yeah. all they talk about are defensive measures. Iran should, we, we shouldn't be worried about Iran escalating. Iran should be worried about us escalating, yes. and that's what will bring peace to the region. You know what? The only thing that's going to change here is if the Republicans retake the White House. Seriously. 100%. It's, just, it's no way. And um, the obvious person is Trump. He had he had Iran on its heels once. He'll do it again. You know he will, Robert. And he'll probably well, ask maximum, you to help run President, it. President Trump's policy of maximum pressure against Iran was was bringing him to the table. We, you know, if, if President Trump had won the, the election, Saudi would have joined the Abraham Accords, and Iran yeah. would have cut a new a real nuclear deal, not a fake nuclear deal, because because he put pressure on him. And and uh, unfortunately, we've gone back to appeasement. We know that appeasement in the long run never works. President Trump would never appease the Iranians. And I'll tell you one thing, Larry. He would have never paid the Iranians six billion dollars for hostages. That that would have never happened under Donald J. Yeah. Trump. Yes, sir. Ambassador Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor in the Trump years, Chairman of American Global Strategies. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate it very, very much, folks. Quick break, and then the great Bill O'Reilly. He's got a new book out. Uh, it's called Killing the Witches, and he may have a political comment or two. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We bring in the great Bill Riley, former anchor of the O'Reilly Factor, Fox, Fox, WABC radio host, host of No Spin News on the first TV. He's got a new book out. I like selling his books, Killing the Witches, The Horror of Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, Bill, um, first of all, welcome back. Uh, I must confess, you know, I read most of your books in the Killing series because they're fabulous. I've been wall-to-wall war coverage the last three weeks, so I've not yet read Killing the Witches, but I want to help you sell some books, so I want to give you some open field running. What happened in Salem, Massachusetts, and why? Well, number one, uh, I don't know whether you should read Killing the Witches because it's very scary. And you may not, you may not go to sleep. Um, this is the thirteenth Killing book, yep. the most successful nonfiction book series of all time on the planet. And I can write about anything, but I chose 
to write about Salem in 1692 because the witch hunt is back today mm. in 2023 in the form of the cancel culture. Mm. So the first third of the book um, chronicles early America. We put you on the Mayflower from Plymouth, England to Cape Cod, 66 days. Larry, you would not have wanted to be on that boat. Mm. Mm. It was an incredibly difficult journey. And then when the Puritans, who were essentially expelled by King James because they were so fanatical about their religion, uh, when they arrived here, things got worse. There were a hundred of them. And uh, the nature of governance was a theocracy. The Puritan ministers rule. They told you what to do, and you better have done it. Um, and in the process, the people were beaten down, and they were afraid, because any indiscretion could get you physically beaten, ostracized, even killed, executed. So this led to a migration from uh, southern Massachusetts up to Salem. There was no Boston. And uh, people settled up there, and they had to fight the Indians, and they had to try to survive disease and everything else. But at the same time, the clerics were running the show, and the children um, were basically denied any kind of recreation or fun, or they were just, their lives were dreary. And a slave arrived from uh, Barbados named Tatuba, who was basically a nanny. And she told her little girls that she was in charge of all these stories about witches and voodoo and uh, the devil and all of this tradition that came from Africa. And the kids were enthralled. And then in a series of mass hysteria uh, situations, they began to accuse adults of being witches, of coming to them in the night and forcing them to sign the devil's book. And in some cases, two weeks later, the accused witches had ropes around their neck. It was harrowing. And it was an easy research because every word of the Salem witch trials in 1892 was written down. And those transcripts are in museums and colleges in New England. So we didn't have to exaggerate or, or do anything. It was their own words. Twenty human beings executed. Hundreds put in jail, many of whom died in those jails because they were so deplorable. And the only reason it stopped was because the loons in Salem accused the governor's wife of being a witch, Mary Phipps, while her husband was up in Maine fighting Native Americans. He came back and uh, they said, well, um, sir, your wife is under arrest as a witch. And he put an end to it, the governor of uh, Massachusetts Bay. Mm. Now, the relevance for today is all of those things were unsubstantiated, uh, unsubstantiated allegations. And how could you defend yourself? There was no way to defend yourself. Well, I'm not a witch. That didn't cut it. And there were good people that objected to this barbarity, but the next day they would be accused of being a witch. Enter the cancel culture, which began 10 years ago. 
off Saul Alinsky's book, Rule for Radicals. This is the um, last third of the book. First third is the Salem Witch Trials, the history of it. Last third is the cancel culture. And the progressive left decided to, uh, with the help of the corrupt corporate media, make accusations against people they want to destroy them. And who's the top guy who says witch hunt all the time? Donald Trump. And I ran into some of Trump's guys last week, and I said, look, every time the foreign president says witch hunt, can he just hold up the cover of my book, Killing the Witches? That would really be good for my marketing. <laughs> all right? <laughs> so the cancel culture has taken deep, deep root in this country. Denial of due process. All accusations are true. Believe all women. Remember that slogan? Okay. So once that comes in, then every single American citizen is in danger. And we have a number of case studies about regular folks, not famous folks, whose lives have been ruined by false accusations. And it is harrowing. And the final part of the book is demonic possession. So that was the crux of the European witch hunts, thousands of witches were burned in Europe at the stake. Mm. Joan of Arc, the most famous. Mm. But in England, witchcraft was a crime against the crown. And so the king said, no burnings, we will hang you. So no witches were burned in America, but hundreds were executed. Mm. Now the demonic possession part uh, is, to me, the most interesting part of killing the witches, because today the Roman Catholic Church does perform exorcisms, and we take you inside the most famous one that the movie and the book was based on, The Exorcist. And we got all the records from the psychiatrists, from the doctors, from the eight Jesuit priests that performed the exorcism on a 13-year-old Maryland boy for three months. And I give this book to my atheist friends. I say, you read this. And you come back and you tell me, are they all lying? Is everybody lying? So anyway, uh, Killing the Witch is off to a great start. I always appreciate talking to you. No, great. I'm sorry we don't have more time. But but, uh, Killing the Witches, folks, the horror of Salem, Massachusetts, from the great Bill O'Reilly. Bill, I will read the book because I've read every single killing book. I'm going to get around to it, I promise. And folks, All right, well, and when you do, bring me I'm back sure in. Yes, sir. One click on Amazon, among other places. We're going to take a quick break and then bring in John Carney from Breitbart. Inflation is higher than you think. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So... We had some inflation numbers out this week, a bunch of economic numbers out this week also. Turns out inflation is higher and stickier than some people thought. Let's bring in John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. You know, John, I'm looking at these numbers. um, Personal consumption expenditures deflator, that's the Fed's favorite measure, I guess, PCE deflator. Now, the top line, 0.4 in September, that's almost 5% annualized, 
In August, 0.4. That's almost 5% annualized. I wouldn't say that's exactly defeating inflation, 5%. The Fed's target is 2 What do you think? That's absolutely right. Um, and what we've seen is inflation came down uh, earlier this year. It then sort of stagnated uh, early in the summer. And now for August and September, we've been hitting these pretty high rates. Uh, the Fed so far seems to weirdly not have noticed. Whenever I hear the Fed speakers come out and talk about this, they say, oh, and, you know, inflation's been coming down. I don't see it, frankly. I think inflation came down. But lately, the news is inflation has seems to have gotten stuck at a rate that is more than twice what the Fed's 2 percent target is. Yeah, in that number, services inflation in September, 0.5, that's about 6% at an annual rate, another example. Now, John, I'm going to have some fun here. You know, everybody, Paul Krugman wrote a column, if you take out this, if you take out that, if you take (laughs) out this, there's no inflation. So here's what I did with my pal Conrad DeQuatros. I said, Conrad, take the PCE deflator and take everything out everything except food and energy. So in effect, I want to know what the inflation rate is for food and energy. Why do I want to know that? Because that's gasoline and groceries. That's what people buy, gasoline and groceries. All right. In the third quarter, John, food and energy inflation went up 6.6% at an annual rate. (laughs) All right. You might want to look at that discipline, you know, at this construct because I don't want to take out food and energy. I want to look I at food it. and energy. No, I mean, I'm that's what, call it the Cudlow Core inflation. Yes, that's, that's what, what it is. The Cudlow Core. That and and that's why. Look, that's why people are so against Bidenomics, you know, which has about a twenty-five percent approval rating, because that's what people buy, and those prices keep going up. I mean, really. That's, That's right. And people, those prices are especially important because, look, the price of furniture goes up. But how often do you buy a new couch? Not very often. You go and buy groceries and and gasoline at least every week. And so people constantly encounter these prices. It has a big effect on their psychology and it is a huge part of their budget. Look, a lot of us can, you know, if, if prices are up for certain things, we can say, Okay, look, we're not going to get the car this year because the you know prices are going up too quickly. We're going to hold back on buying some appliances for the kitchen, but you can't hold back on buying groceries. You can't hold back on buying gasoline. So these are mandatory prices that people pay, and that's one of the reasons that people feel them so deeply. Yes, and wages are still underwater compared to these prices, John. Um, what is the Fed going to do? How do you plot out their uh, path here? the next six months. Sure, absolutely. What's going to happen is they've already committed to doing nothing at the next meeting, which I think will be looked back at as a historical bungle. It probably doesn't matter that much, but they should not have said so clearly, we're not going to raise in November, given these numbers we're seeing, whether it's the GDP number, you know, the economy growing at 5%, these inflation numbers, uh, they they should not have committed to not raising Uh, They will. I think they will raise in December that they will then try to hold off. Look, there's not another meeting till the end of January. Then I think not till March. 
So they'll probably try to skip those meetings. But we will be probably getting some very hot inflation numbers uh, coming in. And the uh, and so I think where the market right now thinks they may cut in April or May, I think we may be looking at another Fed hike in April mm-hmm. or May and then a series of hikes after that. And frankly, that's not built into the market. What is that? What that's going to do to asset prices will be wild and people are not ready for it. You know, uh, the bond market, maybe not, but the stock market has fallen now. Big correction. 10%, actually, it's a, a 10% correction. It's a 17% correction uh, for small cap stocks. NASDAQ stocks getting close. Stocks may be smarter about this than bonds right now. That's right. Look, there's always been a big question of what to do when the Fed stops hiking, which they apparently did. You know, there may be one more hike, but we won't see another hike for a while uh, back in July. Should you buy the last hike or sell the last hike? Hmm. Well, it turns out historically what matters is are we in a high inflationary environment? In other words, was the last hike because we were about to fall into a recession or was the last hike kind of a mistake? If the last hike was a mistake, meaning that they should have kept raising, you should sell the last hike. That's the theory. That's where we are right now. The stock market has fallen in part because the Fed probably is going to have to keep raising rates uh, next year. John, on that GDP report, 4.9% for the third quarter, um, two things. A lot of that was a big inventory build. But uh, at the same time, business investment fell. Business equipment investment fell. And it's the, let's see, the second drop of the last three months. Now, I know consumers are spending like crazy. But if businesses are slumping, I don't know how consumers are going to continue. I think that's right. The, 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 the big concern looking at this number uh, was the weakness in, uh, in business investment in, you know, the, the lines like, uh, you know, uh, non-residential fixed uh, investment, very weak. Um, and that part of that, I think, was a little bit of a pullback. We had some stronger numbers earlier in the year. So, you know, where this shuffles out in the year. But I do think businesses are are coming to the conclusion, look, this is what higher interest rates do, that it's very hard to finance investment right now. So they are pulling back. The question is what wins here, right? Do consumers start to pull back because business investment weakens and therefore hiring weakens? Or, and and, and frankly, I don't know how this comes out. Or do businesses actually start to say, well, you know what? Consumption is just going crazy. Consumers are buying everything. We better start investing in expansion. Uh, so it could go either way, frankly. A lot of that, by the way, was the Taylor Swift impact. <laughs> I know. Absolutely. I know. It's fun. the Barbie movies. Yes, Taylor Swift, Barbie. I mean, le- leisure and entertainment was a big part of that. Um, I don't know much about Taylor Swift. I'm the only guy in the building that probably hasn't been to a Taylor Swift concert. I'm not going to go to a Taylor Swift concert, especially because her new boyfriend is with the Kansas City Chiefs. I'm a Giants <laughs> fan. I'm a Giants fan myself. But um, I just wonder, a lot of that, uh, you had a lot of stimulus from the Treasury Department during the debt crisis, uh, the debt ceiling argument. They put in about five or $600 billion, John. And I just wonder, you're not going to get that. They're now taking the money back out. 
I just wonder whether we're not very close to an inflection point in consumer spending. We, we may be closer to uh, an inflection point, but I will say that traditionally uh, things like war are inflationary. And we are mm. ramping. If you look at the numbers, we, 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 we've been engaged in a kind of war Keynesianism uh, where mm. we have really ramped up defense spending and we're borrowing to do that. You know, nobody's talking about how they're going to either raise you know, taxes or raise revenues or cut spending elsewhere to pay for the additional spending uh, for you know, Ukraine, Israel. And so these that feeds into the economy. I mean, these are, you know, that is money being injected into the U.S. economy. And uh, and so I think we, we're probably going to get more stimulus than people expect uh, if those conflicts continue on. By the way, there may be a nice battle. You know, the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson's conservative guy, he's saying you want to spend money on foreign aid, Israel, Ukraine, and so forth. And the Bidens want to have some more emergency spending, another $55 billion. I mean, they want a $150 billion package, which will probably come to $200 billion when it's all said and done. Um, you may have a standoff because Johnson says if you want to spend more on foreign aid, you're going to have to cut spending elsewhere, not raise taxes, not raise the deficit, but cut spending. So this new guy, Johnson, may be Joe Biden's worst nightmare. I think he is because he's going to try to say, look, if these are your priorities, that is great. We can follow through with those. But it, we don't have an open, you know, a free range to just spend as much as we want. Frankly, mm-hmm. the fact that we doubled the deficit last year when we have almost no unemployment in the U.S., when the economy is growing, you know, at, we were growing at 2 percent. Now we grew up close to 5 percent. We should not be engaging in more deficit spending at that point. The, you know, it doesn't make any sense. So hopefully uh, the Republicans are able to say, look, we've got to cut back somewhere. If if we have to spend more because of, you know, because the world is becoming a very dangerous place, that's fine. But it means that some of your, you know, pet projects, your 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 windmills, your offshore, you know, uh, energy, your, your solar panels in the desert, those might have to wait because the world is a dangerous place and we have to spend money to take care of that. Yeah, they want to make sure that everybody around the country in rural areas can, uh, can get a Netflix subscription. <laughs> They've got $6 billion in there for connectivity. you got to have a Netflix subscription. We can spend more for Netflix I don't know, John. That's Curry, a giveaway, no, by the way, to the sense. corporate interests that push for that. By the way, Larry, you know, I mean, like, uh, if the if the customers wanted it, they could get it. This is, you know, this is the local uh, telecoms pushing for uh, free money from the government. Of course, keep that checkbook open, John Carney, Breitbart News. We appreciate it very much, okay. folks. Quick break. We've got some more news on the scandals. We're going to bring in the great Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst. I'm Kudlow. Stick around. Much more to come. Larry Kudlow. Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. So the Biden scandal story is still alive. I know it's to some extent covered up by uh, all the Israel war coverage and so forth. But this past week... um, News broke 40 FBI informants. These are FBI informants 
uh, signing these uh, 1023 reports. They report back to their FBI masters talking about Biden scandals, criminal reports on Biden scandals. And it turns out the FBI is covering a lot of this up. Maybe they're covering most of this up. And that's on top of a little check kiting, $200,000 worth between Jim Biden and his brother Joe Biden. Anyway, I have not heard this week from my pal Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst, New York Times bestselling author, Trial of the Century, the Scopes Monkey Trial. So, Greg, I've been missing you because I don't have any time on the TV show, but I didn't want this one to go to waste. Forty FBI informants filing criminal reports about the Bidens, these 1023s, and the FBI has covered it up. Is that right? That's what Senator Charles Grassley says, Larry. <laughs> He's yes. uh, interviewed, <coughs> excuse me, whistleblowers uh, at the Department of Justice who have stepped forward and provided the documents. And up to 40 different confidential informants uh, who had evidence of criminal activity by Joe Biden, James Biden, Hunter Biden. So what happens? Well, it goes to the Washington field office that, according to Grassley, shut it all down and covered it up. Hmm. And they were aided and abetted in the cover-up uh, by Maine Justice, Department of Justice, as well as uh, the FBI. So, you know, you've got a protection racket that involves two different agencies, the DOJ, the FBI, as well as the Washington field office for the FBI. So it wasn't just that it looks like, you know, Joe and Hunter and James Biden were all engaged in bribery and influence peddling, but then there's the cover-up to make sure that nobody found out about it. And so Grassley is given, uh, you know, FBI Director Christopher Wray and Merrick Garland, the AG, until I think it's November 17th to provide answers. Now, what are they going to do? They're going to lie about it. Mm -hmm. Oh, we don't have any documents. None of that ever happened. They'll just deny, 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 because that's what they do. Can Jamie Comer, the oversight chairman, uh, put him back under oath and subpoena them? Yeah, he can. But, you know, again, I think they'll just still deny it. And because they'll say, oh, well, look at the U.S. attorney in Delaware. There's an ongoing investigation. So we can't answer any questions in an ongoing investigation. That's their they're out that they always, you know, pull out of the deck of cards. Oh, can't, can't tell you about it. Sorry. Well, Greg, is there a law that says you can't talk about it? I, I, no. I mean, I've heard this before. Yeah, it's, it's, there's no law that says you can't talk about it. No, there isn't. But there's a policy oh. uh, within the Department of Justice and the FBI that you can't talk about ongoing cases. Where did the policy come from? It was just invented. It was made up. It offers uh, people who are engaged in impropriety an excuse not to cough up documents and answer questions. You know, it's one of the great, uh, you know, canards within our justice system that whenever you get caught with your pants down, you just say, I can't talk about an ongoing investigation. Yeah, well, so let me get this right. Uh, This is like Catch-22. We have all these informants which the FBI has covered up, 
DOJ has backed up the FBI. It's part of the cover-up. But you can't. But you have a policy that says we can't talk about ongoing cover-ups. Right. <laughs> so, what, what's what's wrong with this picture? Well, it's it's the chronic injustice in the Department of Justice and a malign and malevolent uh, FBI that does its bidding. Uh, and you know, these are people who have you know sworn an allegiance to Joe Biden to protect him. To do that, they have to protect Hunter Biden. And, you know, that's why they gave Hunter a sweetheart deal uh, last summer that was uh, blown up by the judge, you know, who said, wait a minute, where did this come from? This is, uh, you know, this is nonsense. And that forced the hand of the U.S. attorney. Uh, so he, you know, has been forced to bring gun charges. Is he going to bring serious charges of influence peddling and and bribery and money laundering and tax evasion and tax fraud. Uh, as I said uh, months ago, now he'll say he's seriously looking at it, but in the end he won't do it. So, Greg Jarrett, just let me circle back to this. These FBI uh, confidential informants, can they surface on their own as whistleblowers? They can. Uh, it would take a lot of courage to do mm. that. Mm. Uh, but you did see the IRS whistleblowers right, right. Uh, come forward, and unless and until these you know whistleblowers at the Department of Justice do the same, uh, you're probably not going to get the confidential informants themselves because they make money from this stuff, you know, and you, you blow their cover, and they're no longer confidential informants, and the gravy train ends. So, but, you know, they they get paid for a reason. Because they come up with credible evidence and incriminating documents that they, you know, hand over to the FBI and the DOJ. And if they involve Donald Trump, they go after him with a vengeance. If they involve uh, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, James Biden, they bury it in a vault somewhere in the basement of the DOJ. So one of them might just decide to give up uh, $100,000 a year and just sing. Just go up to Congress and sing. I yeah, mean, wouldn't that be refreshing? Yes. Uh, honesty, integrity. Uh, but, you know, I'm not counting on it. Um, the other one, Greg, just in the last minute, uh, the $200,000 check, uh, this phony health care company, whatever it is, AmeriCorps Healthcare. Yeah. They, they loan James Biden money. James Biden then writes a check to Joe Biden, which in some sense is check-kiting. Uh, that one surfaced, too. What's going to happen there? Anything? Well, it's interesting because there appears to be no evidence that Joe Biden ever loaned $200,000 to his brother. Mm. So uh, why on that $200,000 from James to Joe Biden does it say repayment of loan? Um, there's no evidence there was ever a loan. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was obvious that, uh, you know, Joe Biden was getting payola. But they had to offer up an explanation on the check, so they just put loan repayment. Now, you know, maybe there's some accounting that Joe Biden can provide of, oh, yeah, I, I gave my brother $200,000. So far, we haven't seen it. There's no evidence of that. You know, I think uh, now that we have a House Speaker, Mike Johnson, who's very much in favor of the Comer hearings, I, I think we're going to go back into business. I think uh, the Oversight Committee is going to go back into business. Something's got to break here. And the Grassley so. letter, too. Anyway, Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst. And folks, 
His book, Trial of the Century, is a wonderful read. We'll take a break. On the other side, we're going to do some stock market work. It's a dreary story. Stocks are falling. I'm not, but stocks are. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking stocks with uh, with uh, Nancy Tangler, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tangler Investments, and Jim LeCamp, Senior Vice President for Investments at Morgan Stanley. At the end of the segment, somebody mentioned recession. So let's talk about that. Is there a recession coming? The GDP for Q3 was 4.9% at an annual rate. Call it five. That's a big number, Nancy Tangler. What's uh, what's out there? Um, I'm going to skirt the answer a little bit. I think we're definitely <laughs> in for a slowdown, um, and and that is starting to show up in the numbers. Although weirdly, as, as through this whole period, you know, you had global PMI returning to expansionary status, but once you back out the U.S., it looks like Europe is certainly heading for a recession. Um, so when when you see that kind of a slowdown, that has forced us to really look at companies that are reliable earnings growers. Mm-hmm. And that's where we've been adding into our portfolios. Uh, and you look at names like, you know, Amazon that just really had an incredible quarter, embracing robotics. I mean, there's a lot of good news and all the bad news. It's just going to take some time to work out. But we think the economy is slowing. Uh, we think the consumers can slow some. And the question of whether or not we go into recession, um, I I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's interesting, Jim. Uh, the index of leading indicators mm-hmm. is down 18 straight months. 18 mm-hmm. straight months. And the yield curve has been inverted for, I don't know, quite some time, 12, 14, 15 months. But <clears> the numbers don't show it. In fact, the numbers show a strengthening in the American economy. What do you make of that? Fiscal bombast, fiscal outrageousness, Mm-hmm. Um, fiscal program, uh, yes, it's government spending. And, and I, I was talking to Rob Kaplan about this the other day, and he was pointing out every time they run a channel check, it's those businesses that um, are getting the stimulus money, whether it's infrastructure, materials, et cetera, that, are, that have projects going on with good wages, et cetera. But in the long run, um, I, I'm going to agree with Lacey Hunt. Uh, government spending is a negative multiplier. And in the long run, that slows down the economy. Our single biggest line item now for budget is interest expense. And, again, leading indicators down. Credit uh, credit is uh, undergoing a minor crunch. Uh, we've got senior loan officer surveys that show not only is lending down, but it's tighter than it's been in quite some time. Delinquencies up, bankruptcies up. Now, now, the headlines on those are a little scary because they'll say, oh, they're rising at the fastest rate since 08. That's a little deceiving because they're still below where we were in 2019. But it all points to a slowdown. Is it a recession? I think probably it is. I don't think it's it's 08. It's not a financial crisis. But I think we probably do either go at um, at stall speed in this economy or a mild mild recession. What is the profits picture, though? In the aggregate, aren't profits coming down? Yes. Um, I mean, in, in, the, in the aggregate, for NIPA profits, Nancy Tangler, you know, GDP profits, I thought they were actually coming off a bit. Well, but the market doesn't necessarily move um, based on past earnings. It looks to guidance. And I mm. think 
that's that's where we're seeing some optimism amongst the companies we own. And, and I would just add to what Jim said. The fiscal thrust from the U.S. government is actually accelerating. And if you just take the CHIPS Act, I mean, I, I'm, by the way, I'm not saying this is good, but it could continue to fill in the gaps if the consumer slows some. But when you when you look at the CHIPS Act, the, the peak spending isn't until 2026. Mm. And, and that is goes to manufacturing. You know, we've got a number of chip plants going up in Arizona, where I am right now. And, and the multiplier on that's pretty powerful. So mm. while you have, you know, reshoring, which is going to increase inflation, you also ha- have a lot of spending uh, going on, I think, that will continue to drive manufacturing technology. And the really important parts of the market, um, that's, that's where our overweights are, industrials, technology, energy, and materials. Mm. And, you know, we're not defensive. I, I think, yes, we may get a slowdown, but that's... That is different than a recession. And, and I, I, again, I'm not predicting we're not getting one, but I do think you have to be willing to look at the other side of that and say, I guess the good news is all this spending all right. is that it is driving growth in some areas. Some areas. Nancy Tangler, Jim LeCamp, thanks very much, kids. Folks, take Thank a break. You. We're going to do some money in politics. We have John McIntyre of Real Clear Politics and Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're going to talk some money in politics with John McIntyre, President and CEO of Real Clear Politics and Real Clear Media, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and WABC radio host of More Money, which follows this show on many of these very same stations. Gentlemen, welcome. Uh, I want to talk about Mike Johnson, Michael Johnson of Louisiana, who was the new Republican Speaker of the House, a very smart guy, a very conservative guy, certainly an oil guy. He wants to cut spending. Oh, my gosh. He's a tax cutter. I mean, he's a real conservative. Uh, I'll begin with you, John McIntyre. What do you think of this story, Michael Johnson? Very interesting. Yeah, I think it is very interesting, Larry. And I think, you know, there was a lot of hyperventilating over the last two or three weeks about the, you know, chaos, you know, chaos, and the Republicans can't get their act together, and and that it was going to, you know, be a real problem for them next year. And I think, look, I think when you get out with regular folks in regular America and you know it the more the medium and long term and the actual policies are what they're concerned about and I think I think it could have been a mess depending on how they went but I think the fact that they that that they got somebody in here with with Johnson that is really aligned with where Republican voters are today mm-hmm. and I think that's I think that's really important and I think the fact that I mean, it, he, he, you know, that he, he he hasn't, uh, you know, I, I think people in the conference think of him as a nice guy. He hasn't made a lot of enemies, which which look, you know, at the end of the day, like that that's kind of what what did um, you know former Speaker McCarthy in. Um, and so I think I think he's in a position now um, to to do well for the Republicans in the House. Now again, it's going to be you know how they follow up and what they do. Uh, but, but, but I think, you know, there's a kind of a difference between the Senate leadership and the House leadership. And I think, I think over on the House side, you have leadership there 
that is more in line with where Republican voters are today. And I think that's that's a political plus moving into next year. Well, I mean, <clears throat> Steve Moore, he's a Trumper. That's very important. In fact, he was an attorney defending Trump on uh, impeachment charges. He's a constitutional lawyer, which is very interesting. He's a smart guy. He also has a good sense of humor. Uh, I had Senator Kennedy on, John Kennedy, who said that uh, Johnson does great imitations of people, so I'm dying to hear that. Steve Moore, do you know him? I, I don't really know him. I've met him, but I don't really know him. Have you met him? you know him? You know, I had, I, I've met him once or twice. I wouldn't say I know him very well, but, you know, I think he's a miracle worker. He has turned water into wine. He has parted the Red Seas. He's got to 217 <laughs> votes. Republicans <laughs> right. could do. So uh, it's pretty amazing given where we were a week ago. And I have to say, I mean, conservatives who, like me, who really didn't know much about him, are kind of falling in love with this guy. I mean, he's done everything right in the first four days. His speech uh, when mm. he took the gavel was really amazing, and I love the way he reached out to the Democrats and said, you know, let's try to work together. And even they, you know, didn't smirk too much at that. Uh, he what in adding to the things that you just said about Larry, uh, about him, Larry, that I love, he was one of the first people who wrote a letter to the Department of Education and to the teachers' union saying, open up the damn schools. Mm -hmm. he, he was one of the first people on that. And, of course, we now know that this was child abuse, that we left our schools uh, shut down for month after month after month. He has good instincts. That's my mm. point. And, and so uh, I think, you know, that he may have stumbled on the right choice. It was like, you know, when the British, uh, you know, chose, uh, you know, finally settled on Queen Elizabeth. Mm. <laughs> uh. Well, so I think that one here's one thing that's coming up. So Biden is going to ask for about $150 billion and growing no way. in foreign aid and so-called emergency yeah. aid, which is yeah. just a lot of crap. But right. uh, Speaker Johnson has already said, if you want to spend more money, this is a generic comment he made, uh -huh. you want to spend more money, then you got to pay for it with spending Yay. cuts elsewhere. Yay. All right. Yay. So, all right. So that's I know. It, I know that titulates you. We said that in the hotline the day he was, you know, he was nominated and, and uh, you know, uh, got the votes. Uh, you know, we any new spending bills. This is, you know, it, look, you can't cut one or two percent of the budget to pay for this stuff. I mean, it's, mm. it's totally absurd. And this is a, an important thing. The other thing I want him to see connected to this, if we are going to give all this aid out and I'm against it, but if we do. I also feel very strongly it should come, come from a commitment to from Joe Biden that at least temporarily he's going to end his war on American energy. Mm -hmm. And a, a Louisiana congressman would echo that, would he not? You would think so. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I like that. You know, John McIntyre, the guy's from the oil patch. Okay, let's yep. face it. I mean, it's Louisiana's. I don't know what else they do down there. I'm sure they do some things, but I'm just saying, uh, you got yourself an oil patch speaker. You got yourself, and correct me if I'm wrong, John, is this the first Southern speaker we've had in God knows how many years, 100 well, years or something? Well, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, you, you, I mean, you did have Gingrich in there, and then, I mean, yeah. 
You actually had, I don't know if you remember this name, you know, Bob Livingston for, for about three weeks. So hopefully, oh, hopefully, right. my, hopefully Mike right. Johnson makes it longer than that. But, uh, uh, but I, I, I think he will know it a little bit about his background there on that. Um, and I, but and I, I think I, your I, point, John, he is closer to the center of gravity in the GOP, which is really, a, let's face it, it's a Trump center of gravity. And he was a very strong Trump supporter. And I think that weighed on this speakership. Uh, some of the other candidates were not strong. I mean, Emmer was basically almost an anti-Trumper. But That's just right. saying, uh, I think culturally and fiscally and in terms of oil uh, production, uh, fossil fuels, he, he, he kind of checks off all the boxes, doesn't he, John? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, look, it's also on the on the foreign policy side where to the point of spending cuts, like I, I, I think that's aligned with where the voters are saying, hey, if we're going to we're going to spend this money, you know, like, you know, the, the money's coming from somewhere like like we. So we got to spend less somewhere else. What are we giving up? So he's making the point we got to bifurcate. We're not going to just smash the, the, the Ukraine package with the Israeli package. We're going to bifurcate that. And then people are going to ask themselves. You know, like there's a real disagreement between the kind of Senate leadership and the House leadership on just how much the American taxpayer wants to send tens of billions month after month to Ukraine without a long term strategy or goal. And I think I think Johnson's sort of viewpoint and policy on that it is way more aligned with Trump. And, and most importantly, it's way more aligned where Republican voters and all American voters are. And um, and I think that's that's a real, you know, asset look moving into the next year, because the more unified a party is in, from from their nominee down through their leadership, the, the, the more excited voters can get behind getting behind them and supporting them. I mean, Steve Moore, you know, another 60 billion dollars to Ukraine. I, I, I mean, the reason that that should be broken out because we need a discussion about Ukraine. Where's the mm -hmm. exit strategy? Where's the diplom diplomatic strategy? Where are we going on this and for how long? All right. I, I don't look. I'm obviously opposed Vladimir Putin. You, you just can't march in and take over countries. You have to respect boundaries. You have to respect international law. I get that. But do you have to put $100 billion in every year? That's got to be a big question. And I think uh, McIntyre, I think John's right. I mean, I don't think the country wants unlimited money to Ukraine. Well, we, you know, there's a question about whether we can afford to continue to be, uh, you know, the world's policeman. And, and uh, I look, I'm turning more and more non-interventionist in my own thinking. And look, I was a Reagan cold warrior. You know, mm. we had this in the Soviet Union. But mm -hmm. I think the American people are exhausted, you know, with with the, you know, after what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, and also there's a real skepticism that I share with a lot of people that how much of this money is actually getting to the people in Ukraine? That's <laughs> right. You know, so there's a lot of so much corruption in foreign aid right now. Uh, you know, I, I was at the David Horowitz conference this weekend. I'm actually in Louisiana and New Orleans. And I asked the crowd when I gave my speech, how many of you support? Ukraine funding, and only one out of three people mm. out of the 200 people there raised their hands. So there's a lot of skepticism about whether U.S. foreign aid money is having an impact. And people are just, 
look, people are nervous about what's happening in Washington. They think we have an incredibly fragile economy, and I tend to agree with them. So I, I think a lot of people is let's take care of our own economy first and foremost. All right, take a break. John McIntyre, President and CEO of Real Clear Politics and Real Clear Media, and Steve Moore of Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity. And don't forget uh, Steve's WABC radio host of More Money following uh, this show on many of these stations. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back with some more. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking money and politics with John McIntyre, president and CEO of Real Clear Politics and Real Clear Media, and Steve Moore of Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and WABC radio host of More Money. Uh, John McIntyre, I'm looking at Real Clear Politics betting averages Trump 34, Biden 31. And then I'm looking at the primaries. Trump 71, DeSantis 9, Haley 8, Ramaswamy 4. Um, Trump going to be president, John McIntyre? <laughs> well, uh, it, it, you know, look, if you were a, if you were a betting person, um, he's, he's the favorite right now. And that's yep. what the betting odds so. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I think what's what's interesting there and what you read off and it's kind of disconnected from the from the sort of, you know, political media coverage you see. It's like, I mean, the reality is Joe Biden is way less likely to be the Democratic nominee than Donald Trump, yeah, the Republican I nominee. Yeah. I mean, Ooh. that that's that's I mean, that, you know, I, I think any astute observer of the situation, uh, you know, in politics would say that. And these betting markets say that, okay? I mean, you know, they have Trump at, you know, 71% and Biden just over, you know, 60%. Mm. And um, and I think, yeah, look, I, I think the Republican nomination now is just in a very different place than it was at the beginning of the year. And, and you can also see that, and it's interesting going back looking at the betting odds, because at the beginning of the year, DeSantis was actually the leader as the favorite to be president, okay, with 30-some percent. But, you know, somewhere around February, March, that the race really started to change. And, you know, and here we are looking at the beginning of November. And the reality, you know, Trump is almost like like an incumbent president in a nomination kind of context. I mean, when you're up 40 or 50 points, he's not participating in debates, which is what incumbent presidents do. Joe Biden's not participating in debates. Um you, you know, I think as, as few, you know, as, as long as two, you know, two months ago, I think the thinking was that he would probably participate, you know, in the third, fourth or fifth debate. But I think I think now, based on where things are, I think that's an open question where whether he'll participate in any of these primary debates, because, you know, pretty soon, you know, you're going to have this one next week. Then you roll into Thanksgiving. Then you got the kind of holidays coming up and then people vote in two weeks. Hmm. And um, hmm. so. You know, I, I, I think you know, the takeaway there is it's, it, it, it's more likely that, that Joe Biden is not the Democratic nominee and Donald Trump is not the Republican nominee. Steve Moore, you're in that camp that Biden won't be the nominee. Yeah. I want to ask you, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, you may well be right. I, what yeah. do I know? But I'm just saying uh, <laughs> this guy, Dean Phillips from Minnesota, he's a big Minnesota liberal, throwing yeah. his hat into the ring now. It's interesting to me, um, he will 
run in New Hampshire, Biden is not going to run in New Hampshire. Now, mm-hmm. I think that's a very interesting uh, development yeah. because yeah. there'll be news stories, you know, Philip wins primary in New Hampshire, and that will undoubtedly give Gavin Newsom and some others uh, some orgasmic feelings about this. I mean, th- you know, think of, I mean, I don't know much about Dean Phillips. I don't follow any of that stuff. He's just another Minnesota lefty, as far as I know. But the question is, do you know anything about him? And the second question is, Biden, not on the ballot in New Hampshire, Phillips will be. So go back to 1968, if you will, when yeah. Lyndon Johnson was president. Yeah. Uh, and you may recall that, um, was it McCarthy? Who was it that um, almost upset him? McCarthy. Yeah, McCarthy. Uh, and all of a sudden, it was a free-for-all. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And and yep. a few weeks after that was when John, Lyndon Johnson made the shocking announcement that he would not run for re-election. Uh, and then, you know, you had everybody getting in at that point. And, look, this, this guy who's running from Minnesota, he's not going to be the Democratic nominee, okay? He's not. But uh, I think that the Democrats are now looking at three choices, one of them, obviously, is Gavin Newsom, who I love the column by Holman Jenkins today. He said, you know, he went to uh, to China to, for some photo ops with President <laughs> Xi, and he said he showed some leg, you know. <laughs> that's classic, classic uh, you know, Gavin Newsom. He's, yeah. The guy's an empty suit, but he's good-looking, and he wants photo ops. Um, and I'm sure all they talked about in the meeting was climate change, by the way. Mm. Um, <laughs> and then you've got um, – and then you've got uh, – Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, who worries me because Mm -hmm. she's from Michigan. Republicans have to win Michigan. She won a pretty big uh, reelection last fall. Uh, And then Amy Klobuchar. And I would say those three. And then you've got the Kamala problem. How do they get Kamala out of the picture? Because as Holman said today, she's the only politician in America less popular right now than Joe Biden. And so uh, it's a big mess on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, it it just, you know, if I were advising, uh, uh, governor DeSantis, and I, I'm a friend of Governor DeSantis. I think he's been a spectacular governor. He should get out of this race. He really yeah. should because yeah. he has a bright future. He could run again in 2028, but it ain't happening for him, right? It just isn't happening. And uh, I think it, the more he goes on, that kind of the weaker he looks. One other quick point, two other quick points, if I may. Number one, um, last night at this dinner, I was talking about the dinner speaker with uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, do you know her, mm-hmm. Larry? She was she got just a standing ovation. She was sensational. <laughs> she was sensational. Mm-hmm. She spent the whole speech talking about how the Democratic Party left her and they don't believe in civil rights. Mm-hmm. They don't believe in the Constitution. It was a it was a spectacular speech. I'd love Donald Trump to maybe think about her as a vice presidential nominee. And the other thing I wanted to say mm-hmm. is that the one of the big gala dinners uh, this week uh, by the Daily Wire one of the speakers was RFK Jr. Now, I know you're not sold on him too much, but he got a standing ovation, too, because he talked about civil liberties. Mm. He talked about the Democratic Party. And he said, I learned from my uncle. You'll love this, Larry. He said, I learned from my uncle the value of cutting tax rates. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I knew you were going to say that. Look, I asked him when when Bob Kennedy Jr. spoke at our uh, committee to unleash dinner. I asked yeah. him about that, obviously. Yeah. I wrote a book on the subject, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And he, he's, I asked him, he said, yeah, he just said yes. He, yeah. he didn't go into any detail, and Laffer <laughs> didn't let him talk about it. But he just <laughs> said, true. yes, I, I, I would renew the Trump tax cut or something, I don't remember. Sort of give lip service to tax cuts. John McIntyre, what is Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, what's his future in this race? 
Oh well, look, I I think he's I think he has potential impact. I mean, there's two open questions there. Like the ballot access is very hard in this country, so you know I think there's a real question of where he's able to get uh, ballot access. But to the point of Steve's point at that Daily Caller dinner, um, if he does get ballot access, I, I firmly believe he's a taker of votes from Donald Trump. Wow. Um, because, yeah. Yeah. because yeah. you know, he's really representing that Tulsi Gabbard. He's representing disaffected Democrats who they're, they're, his, they're historic Democrats who see that their party have left them. These are people yeah. that, that are not going to vote for the modern-day Democratic Party. And given, a, given just a binary choice between Trump and Biden, I think these people are, 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 are more than 50% Trump voters, okay? But mm-hmm. if they got a choice of voting for RFK Jr. Um, or Trump or Biden, they may very well go in and pull, pull the lever for RFK Jr., even though they know that he isn't going to win anything. So. Um, I, I think he's I think that is something definitely to keep an eye on. Um, but look, we're going to have, mo- you know, uh, uh, Cornell West might be there. He's got the same ballot questions. It was a big deal that the Democrats were able to sort of pressure him to get off the Green Party line uh, because ballot access is, is critical. It's like whether you show up on the ballots or not. And then you got this no labels thing going on, too, that that may be an interesting component. So. This could be a very. This has a, a lot more vibes of the 2016 race than the 2020 yeah. race because in the 2016 race you had a four-party race there with uh, Gary Johnson and the Green Party candidate. So you may actually have a five-party, five-candidate race this time with uh-huh. West, you know, uh, Kennedy and a no-labels candidate. So, so let me help you on this. Who won in 2016? <laughs> Well, there you go. Um, I think that's. I think Who that's, won uh, in 2016? I'm looking at Monica thing. Crowley's piece. Monica was on the TV show last night. The world needs President Trump now more than ever. There you have it. That's all you need to know. Steve Moore, <laughs> fabulous stuff. John McIntyre, thank you ever so much for coming on the show. Folks, I'm Kudlow. We will be back next weekend. Thanks for listening. <laughs>